Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Star Wars 7x7, episode 931. Today I'm looking at the character of Jin Erso in Rogue One and examining whether her character's story arc follows the hero's journey. Punch it, Chewie. Feel a disturbance in the Force? It's Star Wars 7x7, your daily seven-minute podcast. With your host, Alan Voivod. Destiny Unleashed. Hey Rebel Rouser, welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and there's a fairly good chance that you've heard of the hero's journey. It was first proposed, or at least discovered, I guess you would say, by Joseph Campbell, a comparative mythologist to whom George Lucas looked for inspiration in creating the original Star Wars movies. And much of Campbell's work in this regard can be found in the book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It was simplified for Hollywood's purposes by a guy named Christopher Vogler, who wrote in the 80s a seven-page memo entitled A Practical Guide to the Hero's Journey. He did this while he was a story consultant at, wait for it, wait for it, guess which studio? Yeah, if you said the Walt Disney Company, you got it right. And by another coincidence, let's see if you can guess what school... Christopher Vogler studied cinema at. If you guessed the same school as George Lucas, you would be correct. USC was his alma mater. So Vogler basically made this storytelling framework a lot more accessible. And what I wanted to do with you today is kind of walk through the 12 steps of the hero's journey and talk about Jin's journey and see how well it fits into that framework. That hero's journey always starts with the ordinary world. And for Jin, as an adult, we see her prison life on Wobani, the Imperial labor camp. In the original Star Wars, it's, of course, Luke kicking around bored to death on his farm on Tatooine. Next up, we get a call to adventure, something that happens that beckons the hero to go from an ordinary world to a special world. With the original Star Wars, it's Princess Leia's message, the help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, and Obi-Wan saying, you're going to come with me to Alderaan. That's the call to adventure. For Jyn Erso, the call to adventure would be the rebels busting into her prison transport and attempting to break her out. That's a different kind of call to adventure, I'd say but it's still a call to adventure nonetheless. There's also typically a refusal of the call when the hero says, nope, I can't do it for whatever reason. In the original Star Wars, Luke says, you know, I can't leave to Ben. He tells him the same things that makes Ben say, that's your uncle talking. For Jin, she actually fights off the rebels. The moment they take the handcuffs off her, she starts beating them up and runs out of the prison transport. She wants nothing to do with them. She just wants to escape. 
Step four in the framework is a meeting with a mentor who is going to help the hero along the journey. Now, in the original Star Wars, of course, the order gets a little mixed up, not to any ill effect, really, of course, because Luke meets Obi-Wan before he gets his call to adventure with the Princess Leia holographic message, and he refuses the call Luke does, and again, that's after he's met his mentor. Jin Erso, on the other hand, could be said to follow the order in generally the way it's presented. After getting captured and dragged off to Yavin 4, she has her meeting with a mentor, and that's Mon Mothma. And Mon Mothma gives Jin a chance to get what she seems to want in life, and that is, of course, her freedom to traipse about anywhere in the galaxy that she wants to not be under imperial control, but she has to go through this mission first, and so she reluctantly agrees which leads us right into step five, crossing the threshold as it's known. This is the point where the hero moves from the ordinary world to the so-called special world. It's the world outside their normal frame of reference. In Star Wars, of course, that's Luke going into the cantina, and that's him entering the special world. For Jin, the line is a little less clear. It's a little fuzzier, as it were, because... She's familiar with Jetta enough to know that it's in a war zone, and she's heading off to meet with Saw Gerrera, so she already has some experience of him, and therefore her move from an ordinary world to a special world is a little bit different. It's almost kind of an internal move in a way, because as she goes into the special world, it's not as if she's going there to reunite with Saw Gerrera, and she does have some familiarity with the area around Jetta. She says it's a war zone, that's how she knows to pilfer a blaster from someplace. But I would say it counts as an entering of the special world. And you don't necessarily have to take that super literally. I mean, I would say that being around Edu is also part of being in the special world. The next step in the framework is tests, enemies, and allies. And Luke, in the original Star Wars, definitely has his share of those. He has allies like Han and Chewie that he meets. He has enemies like the Imperial Stormtroopers and mm, not quite Darth Vader at this point, but certainly Imperial Stormtroopers and Imperial officers become his enemies. And also tests that he has to deal with, figuring out how to get rid of his land speeder so that way he can have enough money to buy his ticket on the Millennium Falcon. Getting out of Moss Eisley with Han making his way through the Death Star and finding Princess Leia to get her free. All of that stuff falls in this tests enemies and allies portion of the framework. For Jin, we see that in the altercation that happens on Jetta. We see that in her meeting with Sagrera. We see her picking up Baze and Chirrut and Bodhi into this motley crew, this rogue crew. And the Stormtroopers are her immediate enemies, but... She certainly has a bigger enemy looming in the background in Orson Krennic. I would say he looms in the background far more actively than does Darth Vader in the original Star Wars, by this point of the movie at least. All right, halfway through, let's talk about step seven in the framework. That's the approach to the inmost cave. For Star Wars, that is Luke and company getting sucked in by the tractor beam to the Death Star. In Rogue One, it's not so obvious, I would say. So one of the things that Vogler talks about in his analysis of the hero's journey is that it's not necessarily that physical kind of thing, like Luke getting sucked into the Death Star. It can also be an emotional thing as well. He notes the concept of a person having to descend into hell to rescue a loved one, for example. 
Now, initially, as I had been thinking about the movie, I was thinking that going to Scarif had to be the approach to the inmost cave. But honestly, I think Edu may be the actual approach to the inmost cave because of the stuff I've been reading in the Rogue One novelization. You get the idea that Jyn Erso's character is much more conflicted about her father than any idea that you get in the movie itself. All you really get from Jin in the movie is that she hasn't seen her dad in many years and that it's easier for her to think of him as being dead. That certainly seems like bravado masking pain, but that's a pretty straightforward presentation compared to what you get in the book where she is constantly reevaluating her ideas about who she thinks her father is. And she spends a lot of the time in her thoughts hating her father, hating him for abandoning her, hating him for letting himself get taken away by Orson Krennic, hating him for letting his wife, her mother, get shot right in front of them, hating him for working on the Death Star project. And when she sees that holographic message from him at Sagarera's hideout, this just puts her in that much more chaos and turmoil about her father and her relationship to him in her mind, because it's really in her mind in this case, since it's been 15 years since she last saw him. All right, next in the framework, we get to an ordeal. And the ordeal for the original Star Wars is all of our heroes in the garbage smasher and Luke specifically getting caught by the Dianoga and dragged under the water to the degree that you actually think there's a possibility he might die. Similar situation happens for Jin Erso on Edu. It's the point where the X-Wing squadron shows up and blasts that landing pad and both she and her father are knocked down. Father's not dead yet, but he will be soon, of course, and she's knocked down to the point of unconsciousness. Cassian sees her lying there, her motionless body just splayed out on the landing pad with all the wreckage around. And Cassian sees this and thinks that she's dead or gravely wounded and rushes into the fight. But gravely wounded it is, and seeing her father is a cathartic moment. In fact, it fits in with step nine of the framework, which is a hero seizing a reward. And it comes through, again, a lot better in the novelization than it does in the movie itself. Not that the movie isn't beautiful in the tenderness of the moment between Jin and Galen Erso when they're together on that landing pad. It is a wonderful scene. But in the book, there's actually a lot more to it. And the idea that Jin is able to reconcile her conflicted feelings about her father and understand that he was really doing the absolute best that he was able to do for her. And she's able to forgive him and accept him and understand that he actually tried to do what he could to make this Death Star have a vulnerability that could be exploited. From there, Jin has to take the road back to Yavin 4, and that is step 10 in the framework, the road back, where she's returning with special knowledge, which is knowledge of the Death Star and the fact that there is a weakness to it, and they just have to get the battle station plans in order to be able to find out the whole deal with this weakness and how to exploit it. The road back is a bumpy one, though, because she can't get the Rebel Alliance on board with this, and so therefore she and the rest of her gang have to take off and deal with matters on their own at Scarif. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, because in most heroes' journeys, the hero survives, right? Key point there. And in this particular case, the main hero of the story, Jyn Erso, is not going to survive. So step 11, the resurrection, is not 
exactly happening the way that you would expect it to. The resurrection includes a scene, generally speaking, that almost echoes what happens in the ordeal where you think that the hero is going to die again and the hero miraculously survives. And we have that happening with Jin on a couple of different occasions, particularly with her being shot at by Orson Krennic and his death troopers while they're in the vault, and then getting shot at by the TIE Striker while she's out on that platform trying to readjust the satellite dish, and then finally one last showdown with Orson Krennic. All of these are part of her resurrection moments. In a situation that you could say echoes what happens in the original Star Wars, just as Han Solo comes to the rescue of the last minute in the Death Star Trench, so too does Cassie Nandor show up at the last minute to shoot Orson Krennic. And finally, we have step 12 in the hero's journey, and that's the return with the elixir. In this case, the elixir is the Death Star plans, but Jin, unfortunately, can't return with them. So instead of getting a joyful climax like we do with the original Star Wars with the Death Star being blown up, we get a tragic climax with Jin being able to transmit the plans to the Rebellion, but after that, she's going to be left behind. And so her hero's journey ultimately becomes one of sacrifice. But she's reconciled her past, which allows her to make the sacrifice with her entire being. Heart, mind, and soul are all aligned in this purpose. And so I'd say that's a pretty clear hero's journey. I would say that it fits very well into the framework, which is possibly all the more impressive considering all the reshoots that the movie went through to be able to keep that through line in place and have a very well-structured hero's journey is a rather remarkable achievement. I'd love to hear what you think about this, too. Please do chime in at the comments at the blog post for this show's episode at SW7X7.com. Now, hang on for a little bit here because I have a trivia question for you and yesterday's trivia answer after the break. Stay tuned. Hey, Rebel Rouser. You're listening to this podcast. Maybe you'd like to listen to a Star Wars story, too. Luckily, we've got just the thing for you. We've partnered with Audible to give you a free download and a free 30-day trial of their awesome service. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com SW7X7 to sign up and get your free download. They've got dozens of Star Wars titles, anything you want to do to explore that galaxy far, far away. One more time for you, audibletrial.com SW7X7. Welcome back. Last time I asked you what two types of stormtroopers appear in both the original trilogy and The Force Awakens, they would be a garden variety stormtrooper and a snow trooper. Today's question, once that quad jumper is destroyed, Rey acknowledges that she's going to have to fly the Millennium Falcon by uttering this four-word phrase. What is it? Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before your scopes go dead and you start the landing cycle, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And we'd be spectacularly grateful if you put a little something in the tip jar at patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a slimy mud hole, it's destiny unleashed. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2017, Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.